Hey y'all, this is The Immigration Guy with Kyle Farmer. Today we're sitting down with Doug Wieldy. He's the president of Riata Cotton Company, a sustainable family farm in Texas growing upland and Pima cotton. Uh, welcome, Doug, and thank you for making time to join us today. Thank you very much. Uh, that's correct. Um, you know, Riata Cotton Company is owned by my wife and I, and uh, we farm in West Texas. Uh, cotton is our main cash crop, and we diversify into other crops depending on price and crop rotation. Grain, sorghum, corn, wheat. We've done icorn, experimented into that. So done a little bit of everything. Yeah. No, that, you know, I, I think that Texas really needs to thank our cotton farmers for the big deer because y'all, they they sure do love that cotton seed. Did yes. that used to be a thing? Like a long, you know, 15 years ago, was it a thing where people would buy cotton seed for feeding deer? I don't remember that. No, uh, most of the cotton seed would go to dairies and uh, that was kind of the main market. And, you know, with uh, the agritourism of hunting, especially whitetail in central and west Texas, you know, these ranchers have noticed it's a good way to supplement their ranching income. And, you know, people shoot for big, big antlers and you need a good healthy deer and feed them some good protein and fat. And, you know, sometimes grain is expensive. So let's buy some cottonseed and they'll buy a truckload of cottonseed and uh, feed it out to their deer and, Get, get them good and fat and big old set of horns so someone can harvest. Yeah, no, they they tear it up. It, it's funny because I, I don't remember seeing that until, I don't know, maybe the last like five or six years, which is when I, I started feeding our deer cottonseed too because I heard about it. And at the time, cottonseed was cheaper. Now cottonseed's got more expensive. I don't know if it's still as expensive for you guys, but if you go down to the feed store, they, they know how much that stuff's worth. <laughs> yes, sir. And it's kind of ironic because uh, – the, the deer are a pest, a nuisance for growing cotton. They'll, they'll come in and they can annihilate uh, half of a cotton field, especially next to a pasture area. And uh, it, it becomes a challenge also when it comes to growing cotton in West Texas. Yeah, well, if y'all ever need someone just to go and clean up those, those pests, I think that we can probably find plenty of people to help you out. Yeah, you just po- post your phone number and you might be getting some calls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell us about your company, at, in Co- Riata Cotton Company, how you got started. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm a multi-generational uh, cotton farmer. And, you know, my great-greats have always uh, grown cotton or been farmers since, you know, they came over from Germany. And, um so that's kind of all I've known my whole life. You know, came home from school and went to work on the farm and uh, went to school at Texas A&M, got a master's degree in ag systems management and came home, started farming with my father. And uh, he passed away in 2014. And we kind of had a shift of figuring out how the future was going to be run with his operation. So I took over, I'd say, the majority of the farming operation. And so in about 2015, you know, we do, I guess, what most people do when they form a corporation is to try to limit the liability of you individually and 
hopefully some tax savings and stuff like that. So that's when my wife and I formed Rialta Cotton Company. And we were farming in the San Angelo area and then also west in the Permian Basin. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, the main cash crop was upland cotton. And we've experimented with some Pima cotton. That's the extra long staple. It's kind of more desirable for your high end uh, clothing and do a lot of the grains depending on what the market is at the time. And uh, we've kind of actually downsized. We've gotten out of the farming operation in uh, the Permian Basin and um, was able to spend more focus on our more of the homestead area. And uh, my kids are younger, so I wanted to be home more with them and uh, just fo- focus more time with the family and our local operation. So we, we downsized a little bit and, uh, but we're still, we're still going strong. And, you know, I guess when we started it, you know, sustainable was kind of one of those buzzwords. And, you know, I worked with one of the uh, big cotton seed companies and they were, you know, marketing, you know, their cotton lint as, uh, you know, a sustainable product. And, uh, you know, traveled around the world with them, you know, bringing the face of a farmer to these cotton merchants, cotton mills. Um, and uh, it, it was always kind of interesting because sustainable is a very broad term. And my definition of sustainable is not the same as yours. Um, and, you know, when I'm up here at Nike headquarters and, you know, you got Nike and Adidas and Levi's, we're all sitting in the same room and they're like, we want your sustainable cotton. Okay, well, what what makes it sustainable? And, you know, my, my definition is sustainable. Number one, I have to be profitable. And if my business is not sustainable, it's not going to be an operation tomorrow. And then also I have to I, and I have to have my operation, my farm. I want to leave in a good or better condition than I found it for my next generation. So um it's that that's my definition of sustainable. And, you know, can we work together on certain uh, farming techniques that make us both happy? So um, I guess that's kind of sustainable phase stuck with us. And um, so and, and it's a good challenge for ever farming operation to handle, you know, not necessarily 100 percent organic, but, you know, think what's best for, you know, the next generation. Yeah. I always think it's so funny whenever people point to and criticize farmers for their environmental impact. And they do this while they're eating dinner and not relying on the land at all. I'm like, dude, you guys got to get out a little bit and meet some farmers because I've never met people that actually care about the environment more than farmers. They live off of it and their kids live off of it. And the grandparents usually lived off it. And it's just, it, it's just so infuriating because it's just like, you're, you're, you're so exactly wrong, but you have no idea how exactly wrong you are. Yeah. And we have to, I mean, otherwise you won't, you can't, there's no future. And you know, right. is there some abuse out there? Yeah. And there's always, you know, someone sometime that you might do something a little questionable that, you know, but there's always repercussions that have to be rebuilt <laughs> yeah. for those yeah. activities. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But then they, they look at the farming industry as a whole is like, oh, the farming industry, is some big, bad environmental boogeyman is like, no, they're not. They, they yeah. are. They, and, and they always you know, the the farming industry strives towards sustainability. And 
in, in the way that you're defining it, which is actually how I would define it as well, which is, you know, that they and they're always trying to eliminate waste and they're incentivized by something a lot more impactful than this like semi moralistic view of environmental impact, which is I need to feed my family. And I'm incentivized by improving my practices in a sustainable way, a long-term, long-term sustainable way, because I need to feed my family and I want to leave my kids something. And and so it is, it's just, it's one of those things that people completely misrepresent about farming that I find kind of ridiculous. Yeah, we're uh, all very selfish people, I think, in our country. And uh, none of us have, the majority of people have never really had to go hungry. And um, that's what we all take for granted. Yeah. I do myself. And I, I think, you know, we, we need to appreciate a, a lot of the daily givens of food and shelter that, yeah. you know, we, we just assume it should be given to us. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Did you meet your wife at A&M? Y'all both Aggies? No, <laughs> she's actually an Auburn Tiger. So, uh, yeah, we always oh, joked when oh, we were dating. It's like, oh. yeah, I was like, <laughs> well, maybe we'll meet in the Cotton Bowl one year. And uh, <laughs> so uh, now uh, we got we got one weekend a year that uh, she sits on one couch and I sit on the other to watch that game. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily this year, neither one of us are fighting for much. No, that's right. Yes. So, but no, she uh, has a physical therapy company here in town and does really well with that. And, uh, you know, also is the, the farmer's wife and, you know, keeps everything going, too. So it, it, it is a family or organization and operation. It, it takes all of us. Yeah, definitely. So you're a member of the Cotton Growers Association. And what's your role in the Cotton Growers Association? Well, I guess I'm the newly elected president of it. I've been vice president for a few years and then um, awesome. got elected uh, this summer. Yes, sir. So uh, we represent all the cotton growers in uh, Southern Roland Plains, which is from right south of Abilene down to El Dorado is the further south. East would be around kind of Brownwood over to Sterling City. And that's kind of the way out, out outside boundaries of it. We have a board of directors of cotton producers and then also representatives from uh, co-op cotton gins and, and the independent cotton gins. So I guess as, as a Cotton Growers Association, we kind of uh, listen to the concerns of the cotton growers in our area and on different research techniques, topics, problems, and if that's growing a cotton, weed control, pest control, uh, government issues, and we're kind of the liaison between, say, the extension and uh, our political leaders and the cotton growers and the cotton gins, cotton warehouses. We all kind of have a say in it, and we're just kind of the uh, elected representatives of our cotton producers to um, do that. So sometimes we uh, go up to DC or to Austin and do some lobby work, especially when it comes time for a new farm bill. And, um, you know, we were lucky we had uh, uh, House Ag Chairman Conaway uh, was from our district. So we really didn't have to do a lot uh, of uh, walking the halls um, over the last farm bill because he knew our concerns. And, you know, we could call him up and say, hey, he's like, no, you guys don't worry. And we, it was, he was a true blessing for the agriculture industry and 
glad glad uh, he, he's still he's still around and help helping keep this uh, nation guided <laughs> in the right direction. Yeah. So, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun being on the organization and um, meeting new people from around uh, the globe and cotton growers and everyone in the industry. That's that's awesome. Have you found uh, how do cotton farmers interact with each other? I mean, are they pretty open with the things that they're doing that are working, the things they're doing that aren't working? Is it is it like a pretty open community, or are people kind of reserved to protect some of their uh, particular practices? Yeah, that's kind of yeah, it. Just depends. Everyone likes to complain when it doesn't go good, and um, it always you know <laughs> looks better on the other side of the fence. But, you know, there's sometimes you need to keep your mouth shut when it comes to, you know, land is a big thing. Um, We're all fighting for land. Uh, You know, with with the uh, we work hand in hand with the extension service and doing research. And they they have, you know, meetings throughout the year where, you know, farmers come together and uh, talk about some of the things that's been happening on their farms and concerns. So, yeah, we work together pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) That's good. That's good. What are, how has the cotton industry been doing with labor? I mean, is labor a, a constant struggle for you guys, like it is for everyone else? Or yeah, it is. To go in there, you know, when I when I grew up, you know, as a young child, uh, being two and a half hours north of you know Acuna del Rio, uh, we were a walking pattern for a lot of illegals coming through. And um, they would I I remember them stopping by my grandparents house a lot and, you know, hey, do you have work? And, you know, there were times and, you know, you there were no repercussions. You could you could hire them if you got caught, you settled up their wages and they got shipped back. You know, some of some of the uh, workers, you know, there were some amnesty programs in the 80s, you know, because you know, became green card holders and, uh, program. Yes. And, um, you know, there were some Bracero programs even earlier than that, that, you know, you could employ kind of similar to almost the H2A program, but you know, no one wants to work on the farm. It's, it's a lot of work and it's, it's hard work. And, um, when you can go in to town and work at just say like a hotel industry and work inside in the air conditioning and get paid more, not get your hands dirty and um, go home and be okay. So, you know, that was always a challenge I saw with my grandfather and my dad is, you know, you always had to compete. It seemed like with the hotels in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but you know, we were, we were lucky. We, uh, um, you know, with the invention of bigger machinery, um, uh, GPS technology, uh, precision agriculture technology, uh, you are able to do more with less manpower. And but it, that also comes with a, an investment cost. So uh, people have just had to adapt and that labor is always an issue. Yeah. The uh, the machinery has adapted to hopefully compensate for that need. That that is an interesting topic in and of itself is how innovation happens, particularly in a industry like agriculture, where usually the way that you see it is a consequence of labor scarcity or overly expensive labor. That's what actually drives a lot of innovation in agriculture. 
And so, you know, there's there's some sectors of agriculture that are still behind technologically because they've been able to the, the investment and in innovation hasn't been worth it. Uh, but it seems like it's been worth it for you guys for a long time. Yes. And we've we're not the biggest innovators when it comes to the newest technology, but we're, we're still keeping up. And um, I'll just say like the newest cotton picker, if you ordered a new cotton picker for next year, the, you know, that harvest the cotton, you're talking a million dollars for one piece of equipment. It's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. So I, uh, I don't have the newest and best, <laughs> but uh, we still, we still make them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, what, what kind of, uh, if you were talking about in a perfect world, what kind of policy changes would you like to see in the agricultural industry? What would help you guys out? You know, the biggest thing is the uncertainty of weather. I mean, I, I just remember in college and even going to a lot of the, uh, national cotton organization shows and conventions, you know, it was like, oh, well, if you do A, B and C and you can do this variable rate fertilizer and variable rate seeding and all this variable rate uh, and you're going to save this and you're going to make more here and less. And it's like, but when you look at West Texas, rainfall is our limiting factor. And if we don't have rainfall, everything's out. I mean, we do have a lot of irrigation in our area, but still the groundwater levels rely on um, how much rainfall we get. So if ne next year, it's not, we're not very optimistic because we haven't received a lot of rain this year. We did not have much of a cotton crop at all this past year. Not much of Texas did. Back to the political part of it is crop insurance. That's our biggest tool in our toolbox right now is we have to pony up, you know, a good portion of that premium to uh, take that risk. And farming in West Texas would be a lot different without um, crop insurance. And it is a federally subsidized, you know, program, but... You know, it is not 100% federally subsidized. You know, we the farmer pays his fair share too and, you know, takes a risk. Yeah. So, but, you know, when I go to a bank to renew my operating note, they want to know how much crop insurance uh, I'm going to be guaranteed if there is a crop failure. So um, that's, that's one of the big things that has to continue. So, and, you know, lab, labor, uh, you know, people are adapting without it. Um, uh, there are a handful of people in our area that use like the H2A program, but people just either downsize, get bigger equipment or just make it work. We do, uh, have some H2A employees. And, uh, so my dad started with that when he was him and my mother, uh, they had a joint venture, and um, after he passed away, I, I actually, I started doing the application for him, and um, we got a really good working relationship with the State, work, State Workforce Commission, and um, they are really a good crew down there in Austin to work with. If anyone ever gets any questions, hey, is this H-2A thing for me, call those uh, people down there, and they've been really helpful to us. So I, I, I've been always doing the application myself and, you know, they, they will walk you through it. If there's a problem, they'll let you know. <laughs> and uh, they try to, you know, beat, beat the problem uh, before, you know, the Department of Labor uh, steps in. They're like, hey, we're, we're seeing these applications come back, rejection, rejection. You need to change this and this. So, man, they've been really good to work with. So, um, you know, when we started the Riata Cotton Company, um, I, I took over um, taking in some of my father's employees and doing H-2A. 
Um, we've actually, um, you know, got a perm application in for some of them, some of them, and uh, kind of go in that direction. Um, they uh, they're all from Mexico at this time, and different. We got some from down south, Campeche, and then some from Oaxaca. And uh, it's they're they're sad, and they've been traveling traveling a lot. They had uh, a death in the family, and a, uh, um, uh, their father was sick, so they've been traveling a lot back and forth th- this summer. And they see a lot of the um, unrest—not unrest, but the craziness on the border. And um, it, it's sad for them because they've been coming over legally through the H two A program for. Gosh, probably 15 years since. Well, yeah, since 2000 is when they started coming over, and they are no long, no, not one day closer to being a resident alien or a citizen of the United States through the H-2A program than they were the first day, and that's what makes them real sad when they can go to the border and you know they they one of them hit uh, you know got on a bus from uh, El Paso you know headed this way and he said man it was from these people from, I don't know where they were from. They were wild and crazy. And they, you know, they, 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 uh, they're here. And it's like, why can't we do that? And, you know, they don't want to do it illegally, Yeah. but it just saddens them. They, um, and, and it does me too. I mean, you know, their father came over and worked for my grandfather in the early eighties and my father and and then me. And, you know, they're here trying to do the same thing, better their family. And I mean, we all work great together and uh, I, I'm trying the best I can, but you know, I, I can't change politics. Yeah, no, I know that's uh, that that's tough. But you know, that, that at the end of the day, it's always better to, to do things the right way. And I'm glad that they, that they recognize that. And uh, now that the perm application thing is going to be life changing for those guys. So that, uh, hopefully that gives them a glimmer of hope that they're going to be here and they're going to be here the right way at, at some point for good. The crop insurance thing is pretty interesting. It is a good way to incentivize people into into either getting into farming or continuing to farm, which the way that I look at farming is we have a huge national interest to look out for our farmers, to incentivize farming, to incentivize people to either continue farming or get into it to begin with. And, you know, it, this may not be the case with with cotton necessarily, but I mean, it's still I, I would still put cotton in this bucket. But you know, like with our food, or our vegetables, our 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 meat production, we have a large national interest in ensuring that that's done domestically. And, and we've seen since you know since the beginning of COVID, what happens when things are not done domestically is foreign policy impacts our ability to get those goods. And if those goods also encompass your clothing and your food, that can be pretty catastrophic if something happens that you can't control the inflow of those things. And so how do you do that? How do you offset it? Well, you offset it by incentivizing people to actually get into these practices domestically. And I think that crop insurance is a, a great tool in the toolbox, like you mentioned, to to do just that. Yes, sir. And it's it's still a risky operation. And the yeah. the amount of capital that it takes to have a farming operation is it's, 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 it's mind blowing. And, um, uh, there's when, after my father passed away, I mean, there were some sleepless nights. It's like, Oh my gosh. I mean, we, we added a couple zeros to the bottom, <laughs> to, to our operating note. And it, uh, it, it's, you know, back to my wife. I mean, it was, 
you know, it, it was a challenge for her to accept and understand it all. And, you know, me to educate her and it's like, hey, this is, you know, what what's going on and how we got to all work together on this. And it's a challenge. Yeah, it certainly is. So what advice would you give if you're talking to all those ag majors at A&M thinking about getting into the farming industry? What are some, uh, what's some advice you'd give them? Yeah, um, run, run fast. <laughs> Be, be an immigration lawyer. Go to law school. <laughs> yeah. No, um, uh, I, uh, you know, have be diversified. That's that's the that's the big key. Um, diversify your education and diversify your income. The I, I see a lot of problem with the people who rely 100 percent on farming and you know, you have a bad year and a bad year isn't when you have a zero crop. Crop insurance will kick in and help. The, the bad year is when you are right above your insurance guarantee, but you have 100 percent of your cost in it. So you're, you're losing money. And that that those are the years that are hard to swallow. But if you have a secondary income, you know, off farm income or custom work that can keep your family going, make those payments. That's that's the key. And uh, if it's rental property or you know investment property in town, managing wh- whatever that takes to keep some cash flow coming in. Yeah, I, I love that. That's that's great advice. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, so uh, you can look up Riata Cotton Company or my name Doug Wildy. Check it out. Uh, I try to post some stuff what the kids are doing. I've got uh, three young kids from fifth grade on down. We're actually restoring an old tractor for their 4-H project this year. So, oh, so cool. we've been doing that. Not you know that we didn't have much of a cotton crop this year. We've been spending a lot of barn work and teaching the kids some mechanics. <laughs> I've got two older girls, and uh, sometimes I have to bribe them with ice cream and popsicles to get them outside to work. But uh, <laughs> uh, whatever it takes, and uh, yeah. That's great. That's great. Awesome. Well, yeah, no, we certainly look forward to, to seeing that. But we, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. We really do. Yeah. It's great getting to talk to you. And it was very interesting. Thank you all for listening to the Immigration Guy podcast. We really appreciate it. You can find us on our website. Go to www.farmerlawpc.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search at Kyle Farmer FLPC. You can find our law firm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. All you have to do is search for at Farmer Law PC. Go ahead and subscribe to download all the episodes of our podcast. You can download them and listen to them whenever and wherever you want. Uh, we'll be releasing new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, which is apparently a real thing, Amazon Music, Google, and wherever else you get your podcasts. This is not legal advice, so any information that you get from this podcast should not be taken as such. If you are looking for legal advice, you should consult with a competent attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. If you want to schedule a consultation, just go ahead and use the link in the description of this episode. Thank you.